Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Vegas Therapist. I am your host, Ryan Winder. And remember, what's happening in Vegas is not staying in Vegas, as I bring you helpful tips and all sorts of topic areas, with a Vegas twist of course. So let's get the show started. Welcome, welcome everybody. As always, it is good to have you back in for another episode of The Vegas Therapist. I've got another great guest for you today. Uh, the guests have just been rolling out lately, um, which I'm grateful for, grateful for people that are willing to come on the show and talk about their stories like last week with September Frogley and her um, brother and what she went through with that situation and his suicide and how that propelled propelled her to create uh, such an amazing organization, Connection is the cure and just the work that she's doing with that. Uh, grateful again that she was able to come on and talk about that. Uh, our guest this week's going to be Dr. Anna Lempke, who wrote the book Dopamine Nation. And I hope that you will get that book. It's a great book. And after listening to the, the episode, I'm sure that you'll want to learn more about what she has to say in, in this book and the things that she talks about as far as just where we are as a culture and a society with our relationship to dopamine and how that is perpetuating uh, kind of a negative cycle with addiction and things like that. But also just from the parenting side, uh, things that she talks about as far as our aversion to have our kids experience pain, um, which is another issue that's happening. But all that stuff we're going to talk about, it's just a great episode and looking forward to sharing with that with you in just a moment. Uh, just a couple of like housekeeping things. Again, if you have not rated or viewed the show, please do so on Apple iTunes. It's just a great way for the show to get out to more listeners. Um, also, uh, if you want to be a part of the Vegas Therapist podcast group on Facebook, you can do that. And as always, if you are interested in doing any further work with me, just contact me at ryanwinder at gmail.com. Or like I mentioned before, if you'd like to have me speak, if you know an event that I'd be a good fit for, and you'd like me have have me as a guest speaker, just reach out and hopefully we can see if we can arrange that to happen. I'd love to do that. I'm trying to do more of that this year um, as I just look for opportunities to expand uh, my ability to be out there and to share what I've learned with others. And uh, hopefully we can make that fit. So anyway, those are kind of the housekeeping things, but want to give you some time to listen to the episode and listen to uh, our great guest, and and uh, hope you enjoy what she has to say. I'd like to welcome in my guest, Dr. Anna Lempke, to the show, and she is the author of Dopamine Nation, which is an amazing book. If you have not had a chance to read it, I highly recommend you do, and as many of my clients know, I've already recommended it to them because it's a great read. So I appreciate you coming on, and welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so for people that maybe have not read the book or have not heard about your work, um, Dr. Lemke, would you just mind just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself to start with and kind of, yeah, just how you got to where you're at with the book and a little bit about your career and stuff like that. Sure. So I'm a psychiatrist. Um, I did my medical training at Stanford and then I stayed on and, and joined the faculty, um, found myself somewhat accidentally, uh, treating patients with addictive disorders 
and then got got very interested in that felt that it was very purposeful purposeful work uh could really help help my patients in ways i i wasn't able to help them when i was essentially ignoring those problems which is what i had been doing and um yeah i've been doing that now for about 20 years D dopamine nation is essentially the culmination of uh, my professional life but also interwoven with the many important lessons I've personally learned from my patients in recovery. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah, there's some great stories in there and even talk a little bit about your own um, struggle with romance novels. Is that what did I write? Is that? Yeah, right. So the, the book opens <laughs> with the case of a, a patient with a very serious sex and compulsive masturbation addiction but it weaves that story with my own uh, my own story of uh, uh, getting developing a, a, a minor addiction to uh, escape fiction, primarily romance novels. Mm -hmm. um, and I, what I'm trying to do there is, is really draw a parallel between people with you know more severe addictions, including behavioral addictions, and the kinds of minor addictions that we we, many of us have yeah. now living, you know, living in the modern world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I think is great. Cause like you said, I think a lot of people kind of minimize those things, but ultimately when you look at them, they have that addictive component to it. It's just kind of a different form or maybe doesn't feel as destructive, but still fits those, some of those parameters for sure as a, of escape or seeking kind of some kind of pleasure. So, um, okay. Well, let I wanted to kind of talk about some of the topics in the book initially, I mean, you have this conception of the pleasure pain balance that exists, um, I guess, in our brain and kind of like how that operates. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that and kind of how that goes for, 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 I guess, all of us, right? Yes. So, so, you know, for me, one of the most exciting findings uh, in neuroscience is, is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain, uh, meaning that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine a beam on a central fulcrum, something like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, but when that teeter-totter is at rest, that beam is parallel with the ground. And that's what we call homeostasis. That is our baseline resting position. Um, at, that, at that baseline position, we're firing dopamine at a constant tonic level. Dopamine is our pleasure neurotransmitter which is released in a very specific region of the brain called the reward pathway. So uh, we have evolved over millions of years of evolution to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain. Um, and one of the ways that our brains get us to do that is to release dopamine in this reward pathway through this mechanism of uh, akin to a, a pleasure pain balance. And I think it's really essential to understand um, how this balance works in order to appreciate sort of everyday experiences of a reward, but also in particular to understand what happens in the brain as we become addicted. So essentially when we do something pleasurable, uh, you know, we release dopamine and that balance tilts slightly to the side of pleasure. But there are certain rules governing this balance. And the first and most important rule is the balance wants to remain level. 
and our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance after any deviation from neutrality. And our brains do that through a process called neuroadaptation. So no sooner have I released dopamine in response to, let's say, chocolate or a TikTok video or romance novel or cannabis or alcohol or you name it, then my brain gets a signal that, oh, it's time to downregulate or stop making as much dopamine. It's time to take those dopamine receptors on the postsynaptic neuron and actually involute them so that I'm decreasing dopamine transmission. But the brain doesn't just decrease dopamine transmission to baseline levels. It actually goes below baseline into what is this dopamine deficit state. And I'd like to imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance. So they stay on until the balance is tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. This is called the opponent process reaction, but it's also known as the hangover, the come down, the blue Monday, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. key piece of information here is that for every highly reinforcing pleasurable experience, we pay a price. And that price is the come down or the after effect uh, that we don't get these pleasures for free. And that essentially the definition of biological stress is a deviation from neutrality. So we're also then releasing a lot of our adrenaline or our own stress hormone in response to any deviation as part of the cascade of molecular reactions that's working to bring us back to a level balance. That's not addiction. That's just how we restore neutrality. But the second rule of the balance, which is at the heart of you know compulsive overconsumption or addiction, is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing stimulus, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer. In other words, the gremlins multiply, they get bigger and stronger. And so now we've got tolerance where I need more of my drug in greater quantities and or more potent forms to get the same effect. And those gremlins, by the way, once they're on the balance, they can take quite a lot of time to get off of the balance once they've become uh, habituated to being there. So it's not just the immediate hangover or acute withdrawal. They persist there beyond that. And pretty soon, if I continue to use my drug of choice, now I've got gremlins camped out on the pain side of the balance, and I've essentially changed my hedonic or joy threshold such that I am walking around now with the balance tilted to the side of pain. Now I need my drug of choice not to get high, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when I'm not using, I'm experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. And so now I'm using, again, not for pleasure, but just to stop feeling pain. And that then creates this vicious cycle of compulsion where I continue to ingest this substance or engage in this behavior as a way to get out of feeling bad. And this is essentially mm-hmm. what drives the compulsive loop. Right, right. So yeah, that that was like one of the things I found interesting, just as far as like even the visual of it. I love the visual of the gremlins and kind of the teeter-totter and just kind of like the balance. But I think in the book, it just kind of, you give a brief description, like even just like going to have a cookie, you have a cookie, feels good. And then I, not even really thinking about it, that there's that, okay, now there's thing gremlins on the other side that balance that out that kind of like, okay, now 
you know, you have to have something negative there to, or, you know, to sort of balance that out to where now that's maybe why I want another cookie. Cause I want that. Right. I want that. I want to restore that feeling good, That's right. but it's already kind of gone back to a baseline, but obviously, you know, like you just kind of shared just the continuation of that, I guess then leads to, which is something you talk about in the book too, just the broken balance, which is kind of what I think you just described as how that happens, right? The, the, the balance becomes broken as we continue to chase that feeling good. And then the system breaks down because it's, it's out of, out of sorts and um, yeah, puts us, can put us in a, difficult place, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. That's right. Now, of course, with enough brain plasticity and enough abstinence, mm-hmm. gremlins will eventually hop off the pain side of the balance and, and homeostasis will be restored. The problem is that we live in this world of overwhelming overabundance where we have such easy access to our drug of choice and many other reinforcing substances and behaviors so that with that temporary tilt to pain, we're inclined not to wait for the gremlins to hop off. We're inclined to reach for another cookie or another joint or another, you know, glass of wine or whatever, whatever it is, another level of video game, another TikTok video. Mm-hmm. And then it does temporarily make us feel better by getting us out of that pain situation. But the cumulative effect over time is to simply multiply the gremlins and sink us further into that chronic dopamine deficit state. Right. And, and it's kind of in some sense, and I really, as I kind of went back over it last night and kind of some of the dynamics in the book and kind of like as a whole to, you know, I mean, obviously that's that, that breakdown or that imbalance or breaking of the balance system um, can create its own sense of running from pain. But as a society, I mean, you talk about the book is just kind of how as a whole, we seem to be doing that more so and, and kind of just this tendency to kind of want run from pain and whatever form that pain is, whether it's, you know, something difficult to face or whether it's a difficult feeling or emotion or whatever, we've kind of fallen into that trap of, of just running from pain as a society. So what kind of speaks to you there? Some of the things that you see as far as that goes? Well, I, I mean, I think I, I try to begin out of a place of compassion for ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, this in the ways in which we chase pleasure and try to hide from pain And, and the compassion I'm able to access that by recognizing that on a neurobiological level, we, we really are wired to reflexively approach anything that's pleasurable and avoid anything that's painful. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because for most of human evolution, we've lived in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. And what's kept us alive is that very reflex, right? Um, and then you might ask yourself, well, why would mother nature make me pay for every pleasure by feeling pain afterwards? Well, that's a very smart mechanism if mother nature wants you to keep looking for the next berry bush or oasis or caribou or scarce mate in another tribe, right? Yeah. Because it's that, that pain and the gremlins on the pain side that create the craving for more. But, you know, what's happened is that we've essentially transformed our ecosystem such that not only are we meeting our basic survival needs, but almost every human substance and behavior has been made more pleasurably reinforcing, more abundant, more potent, more accessible, such that we don't have to wait anymore. Um, and we're, we're now 
uh, grabbing for that pleasure. And we've also constructed a sociological narrative around that, which is to say that in fact, feeling pain in any form is, uh, is not only painful, but it's the marker of some kind of disease state that there's something actually wrong with you if you're in pain, or maybe there's something wrong with your doctor because they're not giving you the pills you need to get out of pain. So it's fascinating how the environment that we have created has been created in lockstep with a cultural narrative that says pain is bad. Mm-hmm. And pleasure is what you need. And if you are experiencing any kind of physical pain or psychological suffering, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your life. Uh, you need to change things. Uh, you know, but of course, like every major philosophy and and religious, uh, you know, uh, teaching lets us know that life is painful, that it's full of suffering. Mm-hmm. That somehow uh, the, the, we as modern people are uh, trying to uh, forget Sidestep that, that wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the things and kind of even going into the book a little bit and like when you talk about like that kind of relationship with pain and even just the notion of like, like you just said, you know, kind of going to your doctor and if you're in pain, he must not be doing the right thing or giving right. me the right thing. But one of the things that you pointed out in the book too, just even like how today parents can be terrified of doing something or saying something that will leave their children in an emotional state of pain, right? So it's right. like we we even like kind of have this sense of like, what what am I doing or saying that could be, you know, hurtful to them? And so I got to, you know, literally treat them with kid gloves, like, you know, in, in a more extensive kind of way. And we think, I guess, by society's norms or rules or whatever's happening, that we're doing them a favor, but we're also taking something away from them that is vital too. Um, any thoughts that you have with that or things that you want? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, exactly what, I mean, we're, we're essentially depriving our children of the opportunity to build up the mental calluses they need to be healthy, productive uh, you know, adults. And, and much of that is an adulteration of early Freudian concepts. So Freud's great contribution was that we can have experiences in our childhood. Uh, in fact, we do have experiences in our childhood, conscious and unconscious, that shape us in our adult life, and that some of adult psychopathology can be traced back to early childhood experiences. But the modern day adulteration of that is that any kind of difficulty or distress or even challenge that a child experiences is essentially bad for them is setting them up for you know ending up on a therapist's couch someday in the future such that parents feel very trapped in this notion that you know if their kid isn't happy all of the time that somehow they're doing a bad job. And it's just so unfortunate because of course, what kids really need is they need boundaries and they need structures. They need to learn, you know, the difference between right and wrong. Uh, They need to, you know, feel some degree of shame and guilt and uh, they need to, you know, make, make wrong, make right, make Mm -hmm. right what they've done, done wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and we can't always be their friend or in agreement with them. And we're harming them when we give them what they want all the time. So 
but you know, uh, many of us uh, in this generation of parents just terrified and myself included at times terrified to have my kids not like me or to be at odds with me, this, this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely see lots of that in my practice. And like, even as a parent myself, I mean, you kind of, yeah. What, like, what can we do to make you feel better, right. you know, faster, whatever it is versus like, oh, okay, this thing that you're going through might be a value. Maybe mm-hmm. you can't see that right now, but it, it definitely has the potential of, of having a value. And that kind of goes along with something you said in the book too, just like that, you know, we've lost the ability to tolerate or even, even mild forms of discomfort and this isolation from pain makes pain worse. And that's the thing that I think that I, that really stuck out to me is just that, you know, when we don't experience pain, then when we happen to experience pain, just as a result of something, it's like, it's, it's harder to even experience or feel or, or know, even know what to do with, because it feels more overwhelming at that point. Yeah. We're like like, little babies, but like little (laughs) soft skinned babies, right? Like, Oh wait, this hurts. (laughs) Right. What, what do I, what do I do with that? So I thought, yeah, I thought that was very Mm -hmm. insightful as far as that goes. And just kind of like, you know, the, that part of not wanting them to want, not wanting people to experience that, but then setting them up for something maybe worse because they have no experience with pain. It's like, you know, um, the, the idea of losing something, you know, like in a sport or whatever, but we're going to give you a trophy anyway. It's like, you know, to soften that a little bit or whatever, maybe that's getting into my own whatever. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I hear you. I know. And the, and the, you know, and the corollary to that too, is that when we do survive something very challenging, we can get a lot of confidence from that, um, you know, in our just confidence in our ability to survive future struggles. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. I made it through that. You know, I came out the other side. I I can do this. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you've never had that experience, you, you, people have imposter syndrome. They, they don't believe in themselves on some very fundamental level. Yeah, that's a, that, that, yeah, that's really a good point with that too. So, so as we kind of then look for like a solution to some, to some of this, I know like, like on a very, you know, direct level, we talk, or you talk about in the book, kind of like dopamine, you know, fasting and kind of 30 days away from stuff like that. But when it comes to the concept of like pressing on the pain side of things and kind of looking to that as a possible solution, do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what that concept is about as far as pressing on the pain side? Sure. So this plain pleasure, pleasure, pain balance, <laughs> it works in both directions, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know when we press plus on the pleasure side with intoxicants or other reinforcing behaviors and drugs that the gremlins hop on the pain side. But if we intentionally invite pain into our lives, physical pain, psychological pain, emotional pain, that is to say, we seek out things that are hard mm-hmm. and we expose ourselves intentionally to hard things in mild to moderate doses, what we're effectively doing is pressing intentionally on the pain side of the balance as the initial stimulus and thereby promoting those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop on the pleasure side, which is exactly what they do, staying on until the balance is tipped in equal and opposite amount to the side of pleasure. And this has been borne out in scientific experiments. Uh, for example, there's lots and lots of data showing that um, exercise is toxic to cells, mm-hmm. but we know exercise is good for us. So how does that work? Well, right. 
what, what, what the body does in response to exercise, which is experienced as a form of mild injury, is that the body then starts to upregulate or increase our own feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters like dopamine. And uh, there's lots of data showing that people, when they engage in exercise over the latter half of, let's say, an hour of exercise, will slowly begin to increase dopamine firing and dopamine levels. And the exciting news is that those dopamine levels will remain elevated for hours after the exercise is over, only going back down to baseline levels, um, you know, hours later without ever going into that deficit state, which is the state of craving and withdrawal. Uh, so th that's great news because it means that we can get our dopamine indirectly by paying for it up front. And then mm -hmm. that's a then that that's a better way to get our dopamine because it means we don't go into this deficit state or this state of craving. Okay. Other examples are ice cold water plunges, but it doesn't need to be a physical uh, thing per se. It can be, for example, you know, uh, getting to your to long awaited to do list and getting that done, or having a difficult conversation, or meditation, or prayer. Any of these things that requires effortful engagement. Um, the big caveat to all of this is you don't want to press on the pain side so hard and so fast that you essentially deplete the neurotransmitters because then you um, then you get into a different kind of vicious cycle. So, for example, self cutting is not is not the recommendation here. We right. do we do release our endogenous endorphins in response to uh, that injury, and that does release dopamine ultimately. But we also then deplete all of it, right? And then we don't have anything more for the subsequent times of cutting. Plus, it's just healthy and not adaptive to cut on yourself because you're then you're you're in, you're literally injuring your tissue, as opposed to these mild to moderate doses of toxic. Uh, stimuli that are healthy for the organism. Okay. And that's kind of like point that out in the book too, just like the idea that I guess like pushing on the pain side too much can create like a negative cycle that way. And also right. like you kind of become addicted to that potentially or whatever, yeah. kind of like with cutting, right. Where people right. kind of get, get, uh, yeah, addicted to that feeling that comes with that. So is that the notion of if people were to read the book and like myself, kind of like think about, like you talked about, you know, if we can consume just the right amount of pain, you know, we can discover this path to, as you say, hormetic healing. Is that what it's intended? Yeah, so that's what it's called? Horm yeah, hormesis, the science Horm of hormesis is mm -hmm. from the, the Greek word uh, uh, to set in motion. And essentially what we're doing, and there are lots of animal experiments showing this when you expose an animal to various forms of mild to moderate toxic stimuli, you make the animal more resilient. They live longer. They're more agile. They mm -hmm. can withstand, uh, you know, other toxins. Uh, so there's a, you know, a lot of, a lot of science showing that, um, hardship and mm -hmm. uh, pain, uh, in various forms is good for the organism. I, I want to emphasize here that, you know, this kind of notion of, of embracing hard things or asceticism is more necessary now because we live in this world of overwhelming overabundance in which we don't even need to get up off the couch and can get food and can get sort of all of these stimulants. And so in that kind of world, I think we need to be more intentional 
about inviting hard things into our lives. So this isn't about like wearing a hair shirt or flogging yourself or something like, you know, taking this to some extreme. What this is saying, or what I'm trying to say, I should say, (laughs) is uh, that that we we live in a world of overwhelming overabundance such that we actually have to think in advance about doing the difficult thing because the world is presenting us on a silver platter too many good things. One of the examples that I, I like to use is um, when you're watching Netflix shows and they come in these series. And at the end of the show, of course, there's a craving and a desire to watch the next show. But we don't even have to reach out our hand to press next episode in order to watch the next show. It automatically comes on with that little button in the lower right corner and you see it move to next episode. So that you actually have to move your hand to stop getting the next episode. And that is just a great metaphor for like everything now, mm-hmm. which is why I think, again, in, in thinking in advance about intentionally doing things that are inconvenient or doing it in an inconvenient way, right? Yeah. In the, in the way that's a little bit harder is so necessary. Right. No, that's great. And so, and I think that goes along with something you also said in the book is just this pursuit of pain is harder than pursuing pleasure, partly because it goes against our innate reflex to avoid pain. And then you add that with, like you said, those, that that's a perfect example where it's like this notion to just, you know, enjoy stuff for what it is. And it's like, oh yeah, the, uh, you know, it's going to just go to the next episode. Yeah, we'll just do one more episode as opposed Mm -hmm. to like reaching for the remote or whatever, even in that simplistic thing, it just is, it's such a draw. So, um, so I'm curious about this because obviously I see clients, I'm assuming, do you still see clients then? Okay, Mm -hmm. great. It's always, yeah, I don't think I'd ever want to not see clients. So, so I'm curious, how has that changed some of your approach with them? Like, as far as, like you said, getting them to be more intentional or what kind of things does that look like for you as a therapist with your clients to kind of help them to press on the pain side? Well, first of all, I have many patients who come to see me for depression and anxiety. And then I just happen to discover in screening that they're using cannabis or alcohol or pornography or video games or social media. Mm -hmm. You know, 20 years ago, the first thing I would have done was give them an antidepressant for their depression or anxiety. Today, the first thing I will often do is ask them first to abstain from their drug of choice for long enough to reset reward pathways Mm-hmm. The hypothesis being that that alone may get them out of depression and anxiety, that that in fact, what's driving their depression and anxiety is the ways in which we're bombarding our reward pathway with these constant hits of dopamine. So that's right there. I'm asking them to do a hard thing, okay, yeah, uh, which is true. give yes. up their, give uh, up their their drug of choice, which mm-hmm. is very hard because initially that balance you know, tips hard and fast to the side of pain when it's unopposed by the drug of choice with all those gremlins hanging out on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the other thing I do absolutely is I will ask people to, when they're feeling craving um, or they're feeling sadness, do something that's more painful than the sadness of that feeling in the moment. So go for a run, go for a walk, uh, you know, do uh, 25 sit-ups, reach out to a friend, read a difficult text. I think mind-body work is really important because we're so sedentary now, so detached from our bodies. Dopamine is also fundamental to movement. So I really like to use movement whenever possible. 
and ask people to yeah move your body in a way that you know is hard and that you don't want to do but but which i think will be fundamental to getting you feeling better mm-hmm. okay great great and do you i mean like you mentioned in the book about like parents and stuff like that do you work with that pot that clientele as far as parents coming in with their kids is it more mm. like you're do you work with them oh yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. so you know so a lot of um helping parents to try to tolerate the the anxiety that we feel when we uh, are not rushing in to help our children right mm-hmm. or even potentially uh, letting them crash right in, in in some way i mean what happens is in, in a, you know with parenting today we actually in a funny kind of way get addicted to our kids and mm-hmm. in a codependent way get addicted to their well-being and we lose sight of what is actually good for them so getting parents to withdraw some of that codependent helping that's not actually helping their kids and to tolerate the mounting anxiety they will feel and there's a lot of distress with that uh when you know you're used to kind of swooping in and doing everything Right. Yeah, for sure. And that's a good way to say it too. It's like, I mean, ultimately you're just helping them to manage that anxiety that goes along with that. And if they can do that, allow for that space for them, if the kids to get that work in, it can be great for both parties involved. Right. Right. I mean, I think what people need to do, whether it's giving up their own drug of choice or a parent, you know, uh, helping, or I guess say a parent not helping the child, letting the right, child just right. have their experience, <laughs> is is to go through the full cycle of that mounting anxiety, but then watching it dissipate, and then being able to see how you can come out out the other side of that, and and not feel the same compulsion to act in that repetitive way, but also see what that life unfolds and that good things can come of that. Once people have gone through that cycle, then I don't have to persuade them anymore. They've done it for themselves that's why i like right. to conceptualize this as like an experiment it's like mm. oh, what's what's working for you is what you're doing now is not working let's try and let's experiment. try something to, yeah yeah. Mm. yeah well and even in that kind of words i'm sure for people it's like okay it's an experiment so if it doesn't work we'll do something else so that you get them kind of to buy in yeah. where they're like oh this right. is something you have to do for the rest of your life it's right. like more like hey right. so really just, here's an experiment you know, we'll yeah, try it out yeah here's a hypothesis yeah. <laughs> here's the experiment that goes with it you know yeah cycle through and and see what you think yeah yeah it's great so the last thing uh i want to just touch on in in the time we have so towards at the end of the chapter you also talk about this concept of radical honesty and the role that it plays in recovery i guess through addiction but also in this whole process of of the the dopamine aspect of things so do you want to just kind of i guess how like how did you come about the radical honesty yeah. or yeah, where did that yeah, so this is a, something that I very much learned from patients in long-term recovery. A consistent okay. theme in that population was uh, that people in good recovery almost universally had landed on the truism for them mm-hmm. that uh, they couldn't lie and that if right. they started to lie, they would probably relapse. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting about this is that it's not just that they couldn't lie about use. They they couldn't lie about anything, even seemingly trivial or insignificant lies not related to their addiction, uh, what would put them at risk for, for relapse. And that's what I ended up calling radical honesty when we uh, really actively engage in the project of not lying about anything. Like, so for example, not lying about why we were five minutes late to a meeting, right? Not saying, oh, sorry, traffic was bad. 
when the truth is that we we just wanted five more minutes to read the paper and drink our coffee. And this became really interesting to me, uh, this concept of radical honesty and why that might help people in recovery and whether or not it might help all of us, um, yeah. you know, struggling in this world. And I really have become convinced that it's a it's a very good tool for enhancing well-being and improving quality of life. And it works on a lot of different levels. First of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, telling the truth is hard and the average adult tells one to two small lies per day, not even really realizing they're doing so. So that in order to tell the truth, we actually need to intentionally and in advance monitor ourselves mm -hmm. because we're all so prone to tell these little lies, especially lies that cover up our own selfishness or mistakes, things like that. Mm -hmm. So the, the level that it works on is really fascinating. I think uh, one of the levels that it works on is that it probably actively telling the truth probably stimulates the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is this big gray matter area right behind our foreheads that's so important for delaying gratification, for autobiographical storytelling, for appreciating future consequences. So I talk in the book about this experiment that was done in which individuals engaged in a die rolling task and they could win a reward and almost everybody lied about the outcomes to win the reward. But when a transcranial magnetic stimulator was used on their prefrontal cortex to stimulate that area, they tended to lie less, which is interesting. It suggests that prefrontal cortical stimulation decreases lying, which led me to wonder, well, does then truth telling actually activate the prefrontal cortex? And it very well may do that. And in activating the prefrontal cortex may allow us to better appreciate future consequences of our actions, as well as delay a gratification. The other level on which truth, radical truth telling um, works is that it allows for true intimacy. So we think that when we uh, tell people, you know, what we've really done, um, that they'll go running from us because, you know, because of the awful person that we are. But in truth, the opposite happens and people see in us their own brokenness and vulnerability and they feel closer to us. And that then allows for this explosion of intimacy, which of course releases feel-good neurotransmitters like, like dopamine. So there's this very paradoxical way in which we're so afraid to tell the truth, especially the people that we care about, because we, we afraid, we're afraid it will rupture the relationship when what it really does is it strengthens, very much strength, strengthens the relationship. And of course, one of the big projects in recovery from addiction is rebuilding that trust that's been lost through all the lying that accompanies addiction. So those are just you know two of the ways. I think the other important way, I list multiple ways that, yeah. that truth-telling helps is that it it creates also an abundance mindset, even amidst scarcity, as opposed mm -hmm. to a scarcity mindset, which can occur even in abundance. And there's this great example from the Stanford marshmallow experiment where kids were asked to, um, you know, they were given a marshmallow and told, well, if you cannot eat it for 15 minutes, you get a second marshmallow. And then they kind of looked at the differing abilities among children to do that. But then there was a little known um, sort of riff or variation on their experiment where half of the kids were told, um, okay, wait 15 minutes and you can get a second marshmallow. But in the interim, if you ring this bell, you know, if you have a question or something, we'll, we'll come back. And in half of that group, when the kids rang the bell, the researcher came back and the other half, the researcher didn't come back. And so essentially the kids were lied to. 
And in the group where the kids were lied to, they were much more likely to eat the first marshmallow and not be able to wait. In other words, when people lie to each other, it engenders this sense of scarcity, which then puts people in survival mode where they are not going to be able to delay gratification. Whereas if people feel like they can trust others and that the world is a space where people tell the truth, then it engenders a plenty mindset where people feel like, oh, it's okay. I can, I can wait on this marshmallow and I can wait for a some other reward that might come out of it. So those are, those are just some thoughts. Yeah. That's interesting too. Just as you're sitting there thinking, I also wonder like if that relates to like, cause I've worked with a lot of couples and through the addiction, like I said, rebuilding trust is a big right. part of that. Mm-hmm. Also wonder if the truth telling aspect, what that conveys to the other person or gives them the sense when you, when you give that to them, when the addict might give that to the, their spouse or partner or whatever, that it gives them that sense of like, okay, I can, I can kind of wait. I can be more patient. I can be Mm -hmm. more accepting and and forgiving because I'm getting this truth rather than obviously when they're not getting the truth that it definitely doesn't give them that state of being. And there's a harder sense of like, how do I trust or how do I wait? Or how do I even give you empathy during this process? Cause you know, I'm not getting the thing that really, you know, feeds that in me, which is, you know, simply, but yet, you know, effectively the truth. Right. So yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, from the other standpoint, like you mentioned, how it mitigates the emotional experience of shame, you know, and helps us to even, you know, stop or reduce the the shameful behavior in ourselves as we do that. It just, like you said, I think it really just comes down to truth telling is hard, but like we've been talking about, like with hard things comes a different type of dopamine or a different type of payoff that's more enduring or long lasting. It's just getting people to buy into that, yeah, <laughs> that that mindset, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, or being, you know, being feeling having the courage. It takes a lot yeah. of courage to try mm-hmm. it out and then see how the cycle goes and how it's so much better. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's lots of great things in the book. I, I mean, I think even though we did a little brief synopsis, some of the chapters are still wonderful nuggets in there for people to read. So, I know, like I said, every person I've given it to or recommended it for. Um, they've just loved it. So I really appreciate your work and what you've done with the book and, and bringing awareness to some of these important things, especially like I said, in this kind of saturated, pleasureful society that we live in, we definitely need to start to balance out the other side and, and work towards, you know, I guess just incorporating more challenging things as a way of dealing with life. And that's kind of what life is supposed to be in is difficult things, but you know, society's just, it's given us a lot of easy way out, you know, but yes, it's, it's in many ways, a a much more challenging world to live in. And I think the the stress of abundance is, is underappreciated. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Dr. Lemke. And I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Once again, I just want to thank my guest, Dr. Anna Lemke for coming in and sharing her amazing insight and understanding to uh, dopamine and pleasure seeking and this pain pleasure balance that we're trying to figure out in our society right now. And the things that she was able to share with that, just some great stuff. I know I'm going to have to go back and re-listen. I took some notes while I was interviewing her, but also wanted to stay engaged and present, be able to, you know, talk with the, through things with her. So I'm going to have to go back and listen through to all the, the great things that she talked about. A couple of points I just want to kind of leave with you that I think are critical for us to understand. One is 
that this pursuit of pleasure in our society, it really has become problematic as far as our avoidance of pain, our avoidance of looking to have pain, uh, have people experience pain. And the one thing I had written down is just our, you know, we have lost the ability to tolerate even mild forms of discomfort. Insulating from pain equals worse pain. And I think we talked about that in that episode, just how that the more we isolate from pain, the more problematic it becomes when we actually experience it. We know we're going to experience pain in life, but if we don't help our kids learn how to deal with pain, then when they have it, it's just going to be so overwhelming for them that they're going to have maybe no choice but to turn to comforts, drugs, alcohol, video games, whatever it may be. So we have to slowly integrate a way of helping them to deal with difficult things so that they can manage it, they can gain confidence in it, and they can grow from it. And that is the same for us. You know, we can get on a path where maybe we've gone through a journey of our own pain, but now we're stuck in this, you know, pleasure-seeking pattern in our own lives. And we may have to reset and start to do some difficult things. And like she said, be more intentional about the things that we do in trying to um, create a level of discomfort in our lives. So just a lot of great things that she uh, talks about and that she shares in the the episode. And I just hope that uh, you were able to take as much out of it as I was and be able to apply these things uh, for yourself, for your families, for people that you may be working with as a therapist. Um, I know it's just, there's, there's a lot of great things there. So uh, thank you for tuning in and for listening. Got a great show coming up for you again next week about trauma. Uh, look forward to sharing that with you. And this is the Vegas Therapist. Until next time. Thank you.